You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast with me, Julia Hobsbawm of Names Not Numbers and Editorial Intelligence in association with the Financial Times. To the Groucho Sessions, Works of Art, Connection or Commodity. I'm Sue Mathias. I edit Financial Times Weekend magazine. And this year, uh, FT Weekend is one of the names, not numbers, media partners. And we are very, very delighted to be part of this fantastic festival of ideas. Before we begin, I would just like to introduce your chair for this session, Simon Sharma. Uh, now, Simon's listed on the program as an author and historian, but I can tell you that he knows more than a little bit about art. Some of you may have read his brilliant writing in the arts page of the Financial Times. For FT Weekend magazine, he's interviewed artists including Tasta Dean, Cindy Sherman, and Yoko Ono. Simon was the New Yorker's art critic in the 1990s. He won an Emmy for his Power of Art TV series. He's the author of a book of art columns called Hang Ups and also of a major biography of Rembrandt. And last year, he curated the government art collection show Travelling Light at the Whitechapel Gallery. So, ladies and gentlemen, Simon Sharma. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks, friends. Thanks for coming. Um, this is indeed the Groucho session on art, and somehow, of course, needlessly, I wanted to sort of get some perfect bon mot that Groucho might have committed or uttered about Leonardo, Michelangelo, or anything. But he appears to be one of the few subjects on which he didn't utter. And the, and the closest I can get us is, in fact, I think Groucho's name was actually Art, as in Arthur, really, um, before. Or maybe that was Harper, I can't remember. So I'm not going to force that. Um, if we all, actually, some of us are leaning, well, I'm leaning forward. It's because the chair's designed this to be a very laid-back session. But in fact, the subject that we're um, hoping to engage with um, is not the kind of orchidaceous, auxiliary, the kind of aesthetically precious moment in uh, the otherwise famously hard-driving thing that is names, not numbers. Um, but it's about really the indispensability of art and its relationship to another of names, not numbers' favorite topics, namely money and business and branding and PR. William Blake famously said, um, where money is present, art cannot be carried on. And his particular bete noir was, you'll all probably know, Sir Joshua Reynolds, who didn't necessarily represent com the commodification of art, but represented to William Blake a kind of atrocious combination of academic snobbery and the tyranny of high taste, all of which Blake was fiercely hostile to. From Blake runs, in some sense, the romantic impulse that artists should somehow separate their own creativity from the low matters of the marketplace. So to put it bluntly, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot because a very caustic critic of where we are now at in the art world, the, the obsession with auctions, with prices, the extravagant inflation of the prices where the only artist who I know of, and um, my colleagues here I'm going to introduce, promise and 
Charles II, the only artist I can think of who actually returned the check for his art out of a set of principles that the way his art would be displayed would compromise their integrity was, of course, you all know, Mark Rothko and the Seagram Building Commission. But yet that very same Rothko now goes for, what, 70, 80, 90 million dollars. So my, uh, putting it at my most polemical, which is already upset, I think, everybody on the stage, other than me, is, is the art world actually killing the art world, the art world meaning fairs, public relations, the manufacturer of celebrity, killing art? If the purpose of art is to sit on a billionaire's wall and increase in value over a period of years, does that interrupt the connection? This is a session all about connection, the essential connection between art and those who behold it, those who enjoy it. And to argue back with these premises and many other things, we've got, it couldn't be a, a better group. We have two of the most important living artists, Maggie Hambling, um, CBE, who is an extraordinary expressionist artist in her painting. Would you regard that as fair? I I'm mean, not the, an expressionist. You're not? Okay. Well, we know it's not fair, but I was thinking of your seascape, the abstract. So much for Simon Sharma knowing about art. Um, right. Put me in my place quite rightly. The creator of the scallop on the beach, um, which will walk past, I hope, a number of us this afternoon. Um, and the creator of extraordinary pieces of work, which are, you know, I say this now very nervously, Maggie, um, uh, uh, derived from engagement with the sea. <laughs> right, yes. Um, the sea, your sea pieces, wave pieces. Right, that's okay? Phew. Right. Um, Comrade Shawcross, um, who's an extraordinary maker of um, installations. I said to Comrade, I think of him, I hope some of you know, um, you'll know Maggie's work, I hope you know Comrade's work. Um, they are really, um, they engage with the scientific and mechanical world. I, I think of Comrade Shawcross again, now I'm, you know, uh, uh, it takes a great deal of temerity now at this point to, to say what I think comrade is up to, so I'd better be a, a little bit uh, careful about that. But certainly, he puts me in mind of Leonardo's early drawings, which are about the natural world and about the nature of machines. Um, comrade does engage, this is fair enough, with science. Um, he's, a lot of the work that he does, which are very beautiful and very intricate and very complicated and very dynamic, much of it moves either in light or in the articulated pieces. Um, he's, he's done a piece fairly recently um, for Unilever called Space Trumpets in which these enormous trumpets actually whirl around very beautifully um, in, uh, in, uh, in, in the great height over this corporate space. Um, uh, we have uh, Kate Bryan, who's from the Fine Arts Society and who um, runs the contemporary department of the Fine Arts Society and who's just very kindly come from Mars 
Maastricht Art Fair, so is um, in exactly the right position to be thinking about the relationship of the market um, and of art fairs generally to the content of art. And we have Sophie Hastings, um, who writes on cultural and art matters for GQ and has written for the Financial Times, um, and who uh, came to the YBA phenomenon somewhat after it had gone, she t uh, started, as she told me. Um, and both Sophie and Kate um, represent the other side, the side which is intended to make the connections between the making of art and um, and its production. But I want to start with um, I want to start um, with Maggie. Try and try and repair the damage I just did to myself by um, I can, can, since we just had a word uh, earlier on. And um, for for Blake and people like him, and there were many like him, Salvatore Rosa earlier in the 17th century, um, dealing with money issues was always going to um, compromise the integrity of what they were doing and they, the affect they had certainly was of trying to live in a money-free zone of creativity while at the same time necessarily recognising that they wanted to be paid, wanted to make something obviously to survive, to make their art. Can you say something about you know, your own experience with money and the scallop shell since it's right next to us and that particular piece of work? How it was... Well, the point is there wasn't any money for it. I mean, I decided to do it. I wasn't asked to do it. So in that way, it's... Um, and a lot of people wish I hadn't done it. Um, but so in that way, it's quite strange to be a sculpture in a public place that wasn't commissioned. I mean, I, I, I made it because um, I was angry that this town did not want a statue of Benjamin Britten, obviously, clearly, its greatest son. And so uh, this made me rather cross, and uh, so I decided to do something. And uh, then there was a, a whole, a whole uh, a summer of bits of broken scallop shell all over the floor of the studio. And finally, um, something came together into the model, the maquette. And various people came to see it in my studio and liked it. Uh, uh, but essentially, really, in the end, it was Simon Loftus, who was the chairman of Adnams at the time, who said, um, I love it, Maggie, um, I'll help you get the money. So we sort of worked together, and friends wrote to friends, and, uh, and the money somehow sort of happened, and we were halfway there with the money. When we were halfway there with the money, I decided to start work, which people said was a bit risky, I mean... Jasper Conrad said, you're mad. And I said, but you know, there's a point at which you have to have a leap of faith. And so we start, I started works with the peg, work with the pegs down the road to make it. And, uh, and started to paint the sea at the same time. And the first little sea paintings were the Albra Festival exhibition that year, 2003. And each time one of these paintings sold 200 quid went into my fund for my sculpture. So I was sort of like doing the work twice over. And I managed to make about 25 grand towards the, the cost of it all. Um, so I was very much, I mean, I tried not to think about the money. But on the other hand, I did have to think about the money. Mm. But we finally made it with the money and scallop is there. I mean, you know. 
either an eyesore or an icon, depending what you feel about it. I mean, that, that's very heroic, a sort of an ideal story, really, about you wanting to do something and, you know, benevolent connections, which then made it happen. You know, that strikes me as a... As a couldn't be more of a contrast, let's say, with Damien Hirst's skull. I wonder if you have any views about that, in which, you know, this is something... I have a telephone, which I brought up the road here for £40, which is Damien Hirst's skull. It's terrific. <laughs> it, you know, it glints, it dazzles, it, the eyes go blue when it rings. It's fantastic. 40 quid up the road. It's, it's good chop. But you, you and that's another a, thing. You wouldn't be able to sell it for fifty million pounds, though, Maggie. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I mean, the thing now about the scallop is that um, a lot of people are making money out of it. You know, they make um, jigsaws and mugs and table right. mats, and uh, of which I don't see a penny. It's rather annoying. I mean, Do you think you should? Well, apparently, once it's in the public domain, I have no more copyright, so everybody else can make money. But there's nothing to do with me. My brother said, "Well, of course, you should have told Suffolk Coastal District Council that, in exchange for this gift of this sculpture, um, I, I would like two and a half percent of the takings of the car park. I'd be a very rich woman." Well, they <laughs> too late. Yeah. Comrade, you, I mean, have you had any problems with, with commissions at all? From, have you had to adjust, or do you, do you simply you know, give a sense to those responsible commission about what you might do, and that's it? Or? Um, I mean, I've always, I mean, I, I really enjoyed working on commissions because it's not, it's not sort of like when you're just making something in your studio or for a gallery show, you're actually really responding to a space and to an environment. And there's all, all sorts of different commissioners I've worked for. I've worked for, as you mentioned, the Unilever, which is a big corporation, and that was my first break and things. And then, but, but I don't. I mean, I haven't. The commissioners have often. I mean, it's not. The commissioners have always been really nice, and it's a great. And it's part of. It's really something that's really sad is when you make something, you put all your love and money and time into something, and then it gets shown and people like it, but then it goes into storage and it's just kept mm. in a warehouse or is destroyed and so to, it's really part of the creative process to find that to justify why you made something for it to have a to, to know that something's being looked at and used and um, appreciated and and um, and uh, it's part it's become integrated in some sort of in some sort of building like the Unilever and when I go in there all the I go in to look at it every couple of years or something and the, the security guards all in there they go hey Mr. Shortcross <laughs> we love this piece and but the, the staff really enjoy it not just the people right. coming in for meetings right. so when you actually they take ownership of something then you really feel uh, which I'm sure is what you feel here it's that the um, it's become integrated in the community and I think you should be really chuffed that they make bar mats or whatever and jigsaws out of it because it's actually it's become more than it's become more than the sum of its parts it's generating wealth for people and the car, people are using the car park and it's actually become a generative force and it's become a social force mm. in the community like with like with Margate the museum in Margate um, is a wonderful example right. of that and it's I'm sort of taking it away a bit from this idea of the art world as a bad thing because someone like Margate which is a, actually one of the last of the labor sort of initiatives before which and it was a real sort of um, testing ground because it was to regenerate use art to regenerate 
generator, a, a seaside town, a little, a little like this, but much more yeah. down at heel. And it had the most unbelievable effect on the town. I mean, and I had sort of half a million visitors in the like, first three months. Yeah, um, and, and people from London were coming in. All the cafes, which were boarded up on the front, suddenly had to open up mm. because people wanted cappuccinos. And they just had suddenly this demand. And artists moved there. And it has an incredible potential healing and, and um, social mm. potential. Um, so there is, and of course, then in the art side of it, art market side of things, I do the art fairs and I take part in those and I, I have, like everyone else, this hope that my work will sell and it becomes a very, it's a very limiting place to show art because your only, your only kind of sense of worthiness and um, worth is based on whether you sell or not. And it brings out all right. the wrong emotions of competitiveness, um, kind of um, greed, um, and just and you and but but sometimes but like I've, I've had a friend who made a paint who's who's a photographer and he he did a show of works and and they're all of a certain side and it sold out and then he he did a show of works that was a foot longer and then they didn't all none of them fitted into New York elevators and he didn't sell a single one <laughs> so I mean it's things like that you just have a, so you just suddenly you it's nothing to do with the work it's just to do with practicality yes. of I want, I want to come because you, you all left me when we were talking earlier on you're quite right of course um, you know the art world is is far too undifferentiated an idea and, and one thing that's gone on along with I think the obscene inflation in prices of often not very good work has been the spectacularly benign explosion of public interest. Tate Modern as the example, Gateshead would be another and, and, and uh, the, the Turner Gallery in Margate is as you say just absolutely inspirational and very beautiful place. I want to ask you though Comrade, before coming on to, to Kate and Sophie and their side of things, is when you when you were sort of depressed by the warehousing of your pieces, some of which are pretty big mm. and complicated, would you feel as depressed by it going into um, supposing it did fit into an elevator, some of your stuff wouldn't, but being simply being bought up by some, you know, billionaire um, and, you know, seen again by his friends mm. and at the odd cocktail party or something, or was that a whole lot less depressing? And if so, it's why? Less, it's less, it's much less depressing for something to be seen by, by people, definitely. Yeah. Whether they, I mean, I don't, I'm not a, I mean, I, there's, there's some, whether they're a billionaire or not, I, they're, they're, I've never had, um, I've, personally, I've never had anything go to auction. I've been practicing, people have been buying my work for 10 mm. years, which I think is a really good sign of the gallery that I'm with. Because right. they don't sell to people who are looking to sell it on in a few years. And it may be that they are intending to sell it on and my prices haven't, aren't, they wouldn't get a good price for it. I don't know, it's, I, it's yet to be, to be known. But, um, but a lot of galleries will, there's such a different range of galleries the way they operate. But in terms of billionaires, um, looking at my work, I don't have a problem with someone very rich or someone very poor looking at my work. It doesn't really. No, the hope, hopefully, did, they all have um, the same capacity yeah. to enjoy it. Right. But um, their motives, I hope, are ones that they are. They 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 like the conversation around an object. Well, the the market. I mean, it's quite true that that um, since the Medici, 
you know, uh, oil painting wouldn't have got to Italy had it not been for the fact that the Medici Bank was in Antwerp as well, and therefore actually seized Flemish oils, and they were portable things, and mm -hmm. Hugo von der Hoos then became heavily imported in, into Florence. So that's always been, been the case. Um, but it, it, it strikes me that, that I mean, the, and, and Kate, let me come to you about this, actually, and um, you've just come from a fair. Um, I mean, you would, you would admit, would you, or maybe you wouldn't, um, that since the time Sotheby's Index in 1967, created by someone with a very PR frame of mind, Peter Wilson, you know, that was always said to perpetuate the notion that you could actually use works of art as an investment, which you could cash in when you wanted to. That's, that, you know, that part of it is part of the, of, of the world of fairs, isn't it? It may not, may not be the main part. So, um, I mean, do, do, do you understand what Comrade was saying when he said you go in Jekyll as an artist and you come out of an art fair as Hyde? Yeah, I can completely understand that because it is the only sort of, it feels like it's the, the everyone's there to buy art or to sell art. And that actually to go to as an, an art fair, even though I'm in the art world, if I go to an art fair and I have no intention of buying anything, I feel like a bit of a fraud walking around that it's it's not my place, not like the uh, the Tate Modern, for example. But then you look at Freeze and there are 75,000 people that visit Freeze over that short space of time, the percentage of which are buyers must be less than 5%, I'd say. And you look at all the museums around London and all the institutions will do their best shows during Freeze Week because that art fair, whether whether we feel like it's a sort of a really hardcore financial commercial centre, has ramifications, has waves in a non-commercial arena. So it gets people visiting art, gets people looking at art, and it gets visitor. I mean, the, the numbers go up hugely at, at even the British Museum during Freeze Week. Um, and so I think there are, yeah, at, it, at, its, at its worst, an art fair is just a really vile thing actually in so many ways but at its best it has an amazing knock-on effect and I think you know spending time at Maastricht yeah a lot of my conversations were with clients people there who wanted to buy art and oftentimes they will ask you questions which aren't direct but are very leading as to mm. what sense of investment am I getting from this work mm. but they're kind of couched in art world terms like where is the artist in their career what museum collections are they in x y and z but actually at the same time I'm also in a really privileged position where I got to meet you know the very pertinent director that I needed to speak to from the uh, a curator from the Met because my artists are working on an artwork which is in the Met in New York at the moment so he's there and then the same morning we meet someone who's the director of the Moritz House Museum and so you can get all this, all these conversations happening, and show these people artworks, which is not—it's not a monetary exchange; it's actually a curatorial exchange. You want to present your artists to them. Tell, tell me, well, uh, give me an, give me one work of art at the last free show that really well, knocked you over. I have to say that I don't have one from the last free show. I came away. Give a bit me a work of art from any of the, the free the one, shows. The one that I would say this is distinctly memorable was Michael Landy from not last year, the year before the last. The, um, the, the machine that the made the drawing. So it was an extraordinary object made of lots of found materials, all of it seemingly to be sort of fairly detritus. And it was um, uh, motorised, although you didn't realise that as you walked up to it. It was very large. And you handed over your credit card. And the act of handing over your credit card was a sort of seemingly a sort of monetary thing. But actually it was an inconvenience because you weren't charged anything, but they just destroyed your credit card through a, um, a hedge trimmer. So you you handed the machine, you handed the woman your credit card and you watched it get shredded and turned into a pile of other sh 
shredded credit cards and you were a complete fool. You know, you had to be put in a position of being a complete moron. That's what he wanted you to feel like. And, and then you give that credit card, you've then got to apply for a new credit card. Would you, would you, but would you've, you got want a, that? you've got an artwork out of it. Right. Let, let's, let's um, this is even more, you know, um, reductio ad absurdum, so I'm going to say it. You, you have the offer of a small Cezanne landscape or the Michael Landy. Which mm. would you choose? Well, I need to see the Cezanne landscape. Okay, you might see my... <laughs> I'd need to see the same. So, because you think some of this stuff is rubbish? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think Suzanne's... I would give my right arm to own anything by Suzanne, in truth. But I Why? couldn't pause... Because I think he was a really important godfather of what happened in the 20th century. I have a really intimate connection with his paintings. Right. I think they're absolutely wonderful, and I've seen many of them. And he's definitely an artist that I would really connect with. If you offered... If it was the same with a sizzly, maybe I wouldn't... I mean, I, I'm allowed to have personal taste regardless of what I understand about the market, you know, in terms of what I would right. get a thrill out of having well, on I, my wall. I, the, the only reason I, I said that is that it's been said that huge amounts of money from the Ukraine, from Russia, from the Middle East, swooshing into the market have basically created a demand which actually can't be satisfied um, by the likes of Maggie and Conrad. And therefore it's had the effect in things like contemporary art fairs at Basel of massively inflating the worth of mediocre to really bad art, much of which fills the majority of the dealer's stands. that fair or outrageously unfair? I think, yes, there's a, it's a very, very bloated art market, and yes, some art is overpriced, but I also think that money notwithstanding, artists are still working as they always have in their studios. They're, they're artists because they want to be artists. They're artists because they need to do it. They need to express themselves. They need to make things. And that hasn't changed. I don't, I don't think it's nearly as simple as the art world has become an overblown money bubble. I think there is right. that aspect of it where oligarchs, new money, Chinese collectors are willing to part with enormous amounts of money for conspicuous consumption, to stick things on their wall and to show people how very rich they are. But I don't think that defines what's happening with contemporary art now. Right. It's part of it. You're, you're, not, you're not afraid that, um, that there's been some sort of collapse of quality because it's known that demand can be manipulated to satisfy exactly... Um, the, the craving that has been there since the Medici for very rich people to say, you know, I rise above low mercenary activity. If you want to understand what kind of rich person I am, come and look at what's on my wall. But what they're buying um, is the brand artist. They're buying Hearst, they're buying Jeff Koons, they're buying Warhol, they're buying Baskier, right. they're buying certain artists. I still don't think that affects the very good art that's continuing to be made by a lot of artists. Right, well, since you've raised Coons and, and Co, um, is, is, might that not be a case? I mean, maybe, maybe you both love Jeff Coons' work, I don't know, or maybe not. Do yeah. you? Okay, I don't. But, um, uh, you know, they, what is certainly true is that um, you've described it as a brand. Yeah. And the prices fetched are... Staggering, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so I'm wondering what you, whether you think actually, the, um, any of you, maybe I'll come back to you, Maggie, whether you, you think that the, you know, Jeff Koons is a celebrity artist, it strikes me. I mean, a lot of what he does, he doesn't do anything. He's not like you. He doesn't make anything. He works with people, as he always says, actually. He provides the concept. 
the concepts and not not a you know not a muscle in his hand. Um, he, he never he never touches the material of the artwork he makes. Well, I Is mean, that the same that's... kind of art production that you do? No. Right. <laughs> exactly. No, I mean, that's, no, no, that's I what mean, I mean. I'm, I'm some simple manual worker. I work with my hands, the physicality exactly. of the paint and the, 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 the human touch of the paint. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what... Uh, that's what I'm about. But I mean, making a piece of art is, is a very sort of selfish thing. You know, you go in a room and you make a bit of art because that's what you want to do. It's very but is, but there's selfish. An, but there's an acknowledgement with something like your. I haven't seen it yet, but I presume it's made of bronze, the, the scallop no, steel. or steel. But there's a. But that you that that you do. It's if you want to be a master of something, you have to spend your whole life doing that one thing. And if you are gonna start to use many different beer pot and use different materials like wood and, and steel and bronze and foundries. It there is a, you have to really acknowledge that other people will be able to do that better than you. Well no, it's, it's very a, different. It takes, I mean I have a studio very with different. and we have people who are mm -hmm. on the lathe and on the mill and on the right. welder and I can weld and I can use the mill and I can use the lathe. But there, you go. there, there is a there's a sadness a sadness but also an acknowledgement now that I've had to realise that with me being the, the leader or the, the organizer of the team and the, and the sort of the conceiver and the, the conceptualist, if you like, there is the, the people that I can't weld now as well as the guy who's doing it for a few hours a day. And I have had to, there's a, there's a standard that he's reached and a sort of a, an intensity with his material and, and the accuracy and the, just the, the complete, um, um, just the immersement in that process, right. just like like anything, like a painter or a draftsman, and or um, and that there is a. I've had to. I have to, and it's quite. It's quite. I'm quite proud of it, but I'm also sad in a way. But but there's so many levels that I couldn't possibly fulfil myself on these complex mm. systems, and machines, and things. But so I'm, there isn't. Yeah. It's very different when you make a piece of sculpture. Because obviously, you're working with other people, and that's completely different from just going into a studio. And, Making a painting. Mm. It's, it's a yeah. whole different but thing. But I'm genuinely jealous of um, actually the, the, the sort of um, to be immersed in the process, whether that's needling a piece of clay or painting like you do. Um, but that, that, that complete sort of cerebral kind of contemplative state where you can dream. It's a menial task in some senses, but it's so you can dream and think about things and you escape through it. Whereas what, I'm, what my process is in a sculpture studio is, is much more. Um, Logistical, and um, yeah. um, but I'm am sort of um, I'm jealous of what I used to do when I was when I was to spend eight hours a day yeah. storing pieces of wood and then milling and then routing them or whatever right. you just escape into your own head, but it just it has it sort of evolves. Mm. Um, do, do we think this sort of cult of the celebrity artist? You know, Sophie. I mean, you you were. Preoccupied with the YBA at one point. Mm. I mean, that's. I mean, should should we all be more relaxed about that? And um, or, or has it actually damaged the possibility of making the kind of connection with the art that looks at the art and not really thinks about them the as you know appearing in the pages of the magazine you and I work for, GQ. I, th <laughs> I think that um, if you're worried about looking at Tracy Emin, she is the art. So. And that's absolutely what she says. It's blatant. She's making art about herself. She's, she's part of her artwork. So looking at her, whether it's in a magazine or whether it's her work, is, I think, part of the same thing. And Damien Hirst's manipulation of the market as well, bringing the market into... Well, let me, let me, uh, let me stop you for a second. What is it that art does 
after all, you'll spend your life in it, mm. that is satisfied by discovering things about Tracy Emin. Because the, way, because the way she talks about her life, the way she talks about herself is absolutely part that of That is her a work art. of art. That yeah. is a work yeah. of art. Right. But I mean, it's not a new thing. If you think of Courbet, for instance, mm. who painted himself in self-portraits as the most glamorous thing that ever happened. <laughs> and, you know, there's painted a studio of Courbet with a whole crowd around and a bit of a naked model and him at the easel. And, I mean, this sort of showbiz thing is not new. Mm. No, well, self-portraiture isn't new. And, and sort of, you know, conceptually dramatic self-portraiture isn't new. But it is self-portraiture, really. That's, you know, that's strikes me as different from Tracy Emin's... But she's, is, she's a self-portraitist, isn't she? That's all she does is yeah. keep yeah, make, remaking right, her Right, Kobe, Tracy Emin. That's not a problem for anybody. But it doesn't matter. They drink the same. It doesn't life. matter. Okay, well that's very important. It doesn't matter. The quality doesn't matter. No, I'm not saying the quality doesn't matter. I'm saying they're two. They're completely different, and I, and I think the comparison is odious. I think there's always been a cult of the individual for an artist. I think an, an artist. I mean, we've sort of myth, you know mythologized that cult. You know, with the idea of the expressionists and Van Gogh, for example, and needing to read all about their biographies and to understand their art. But I think there is a distinct thing about you know who the artist is in our society, and we we it's, there's been a strange shift in the last ten mm. years. We kind of always saw them as the outsider and quite mystical, and you know they wouldn't really come to art fairs. And suddenly yeah. it frees the artists are turning up to the art fair, and actually sometimes they're producing artwork at an art fair. But that's because the people who started Freeze um, were very much inside the art world. Mm. They'd already done Freeze magazine for 10 years. They knew the artist and they wanted to make the art fair mm. somewhere that could be about creativity, somewhere yeah. that artists would want to be, some, somewhere that encouraged young unknown artists and made special sections for young unknowns so that it isn't just about going and buying big, blingy brand secondary market artists. There are also there's a possibility of discovery at Freeze. And I also think as well that it's, we talk about this idea of the celebrity status of an artist or these artists being household names or brand names. If you just walked up to someone on the street and said can you name me a living artist that you'd, I mean, some people wouldn't have heard of Damien Hurst. It's not as if this guy is penetrating, you know, 50 million people. It's, it, 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 we all know who he is, of course, and a lot of people internationally know who he is, but there are so many artists who aren't household names who will never be household names and I think for the, my greatest clients that I work with and collectors they want to meet the artist actually they it, for them it's quite an intrinsic part of why you collect contemporary art otherwise they could collect something else I mean one of the really unique things about contemporary art out of, of everything you could collect is that you could have a relationship with the artist you could go to their studio and have dinner with them and, and they'll throw an idea out there that they're working on something and they, they can't get the money together or they're not quite sure if they can make it happen and then four years later you turn up at their exhibition and you see it. I mean, I, I would think that would be a really exciting yeah. thing to be involved in. So I don't think we should negate, I don't think an artist should be invisible just working so away. You're, you're, I'm, I'm not quite understanding you. So you're saying actually there are some contemporary artists who really want to make the connection um, and will invite people, it doesn't sound like Lucian Freud to me, and if Esther's here, you know, um, actually inviting the public, really, to commune with him about his next work. I, You're saying that's the case. I think that's cases. certainly the case. I don't think Comrade, anyone, Maggie, are you going to have people isolation. in your, what, no, in your studios? No, I, mean, I, I like the conversations around an object. I mean, it's, um, it depends who wants to meet you, I suppose, a little to a certain mm. extent. But um, I... 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, but I, I suppose in terms of defending the, uh, from my point of view, the, the first time I ever sold a piece of work, and it was to Saatchi, and it was, uh, but it was an amazing, and the most amazing feeling, and you never get that feeling quite the same again. And it was the endorsement of that, and that yeah. just, but the sense of having just built this thing for three months and been working three days a week. I was doing extra work in films, and I was doing that, and then two days a week, and the weekend I would be building this thing. It was to, just all on my own, this rope machine, and I'd sold this thing, and I suddenly got this little bit of money. I made seven grand, and it was like unbelievable. It was like the biggest, and it was, and, and Saatchi, even then in 2003, there was so le much less of an art world then, mm. and no one else in the world was going to buy this thing. Yeah. And he's had, he showed it in New Blood, and he's had it in storage since. I mean, he hasn't really sort of made loads of money out of me or anything. I mean, it's sort of... It was, it Why didn't he put it in the gallery? Well, he did show it in New Blood, but he, he showed in that one in the, on the river, but then he hasn't, he's just, and he has, since then he bought a couple of other pieces, but Without that sort of springboard, without that collector, who is a, mm. who's a, he's a, he's a, he's a uh, venture capitalist and whatever you want to call him, he's but, and everyone sort of moans and bitches about him. But actually, mm. without that, I might, I might still be working three days a week and just, mm. not ever, no one have ever heard about right. me. So it does take. That was a real. Right. Yeah. I want to open it up to all of all of you. Um, and while it's hard to, the microphones will come round. Um, you, you're very welcome. We, we have a you know special opportunity to to make a connection with with um, our two artist friends here, as well as our um, two colleagues here from the from the art world and loosely described. So feel free to ask anything you'd like. But I, I wonder if any of you want to respond to what you expect and from contemporary art and what you feel about whether or not contemporary art is delivering the goods in terms of making a difference to your life. Um, so I'm, I might, um, I might oh, sorry. There, yes, have you got a microphone? Yeah, okay, good, I might. Thank you. Would you announce yourselves? Yeah, actually? my name is Rick Stroud, and I'm Hi. I'm not an artist, but I am the chairman of the Chelsea Arts Club. Right. Uh, and while some of our, our members are absolutely ruthless in bartering their work for fancy suits, and they they all realise that there's a lot of luck when you're successful. And when I say bartering, they will, you know, there's one member who's got a year's worth of lunches in a restaurant but on one of his works. But what absolutely typifies all of our artist members is that when they're in the club, they don't talk about commodity and they don't talk about how much they're selling their work for. They talk about being in the studio. And it's, you know, are you in the studio? I'm in the studio. And that seems to me that's the sort of pulse of their, their lives. It's, it's something that they don't have any choice but to do. And, and but to do it means being in the studio, being on your own, making a work of art, which is not really a work of art. It's just an expression of you. That's all I wanted to say. Well, I mean, an artist uh, should be, an artist of any kind, a seeker after the truth. I mean, that's what it's about, isn't it? That's what we're all at. I mean, trying to say something about the truth. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I know all this is about money, but uh, my mentor, Let Haynes, of the other half of Cedric Morris, I mean, he always said um, a good painting's worth all the money in the world and a bad painting's worth nothing at all. I think he's absolutely right. Do you think that's the way it works out, though, at auction? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's handy when they're dead. Yeah. I mean, the one way to make the prices go up, <laughs> die. But it's, you know, a rather a high price to pay, isn't it? Is it? 
But is it that bad if a bad artist makes a living? I mean, I mean, so is it that bad if a bad artist, to, or, say in a hundred years, answer your a own lot question? Of, is, is, what is, do it, you think? is it is it that bad? I don't know. I mean, I. Well, I ask you. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I suppose I suppose you know the, the, this session is about connection, and um, uh, I've put it over deliberately, crudely, and over polemically. Mm. I, I, I do wonder whether the cult of the celebrity artist, the obsession with price, mm. you know, um, at least the. the uh, yeah. you know, I mean, if you, if you look at what artists discussed in how to spend it, I'm mm. trying to be loyal to my, you know, my lovely FT, but if you look at the way, it is all actually about the money. It's about records. In the New York Times, column after column after column is taken up. Um, there is a whole, whole kind of genre of writing about whether expectations of a spectacularly, spectacular increase in auction prices for contemporary art or modern art actually were realised at Sotheby's or Christie's or wherever, or whether they were disappointed. That strikes to me, and maybe the best we can say is, well, it's always been like this. I actually think it's... No. It, okay, okay. No, I don't yeah. think it has, because we didn't even have contemporary auctions until recently. The, Look at what happened to Basquiat. His story was mm. so unique. 1980s New York. For someone to be that rich, that young. That, that's a completely new phenomenon. Contemporary artists. Yeah. Even the idea of that uh, you could say, I'm a contemporary art collector, is a really new thing. It was only at the beginning of the 20th century that people in Paris sort of started but looking around and buying avant-garde work. I don't think, I, I'm not saying it's a problem, I'm just saying mm. that well, the whole idea of works of art selling for millions and millions and millions at auction is a very niche part of the art world. I mean, exactly. it's not my world. I mean, I, I, I it's nothing to do with me. I don't deal in secondary art. When I meet a new collector, it finds, I find it endlessly frustrating that they go and art net my artists because my artists, like Conrad, don't haven't been sent to auction because they've got yeah. very loyal patrons that are protecting those works, looking after their works, kind of having this great nurturing relationship with right. the artist or the gallery. And so my world's not auction. If you ask me anything about auction, I wouldn't know how to answer it. I know nothing about it. There's a lot of other writing that isn't about the market and that mm. isn't about the money and the, and the Prices, of course, how to spend it's going to write about money because that's what they're right. about. And right. the New York Times, similarly, but there's a yeah. lot of discussion around art which isn't Don't you think anything to do with the money. Boring, yes, yeah. money, it's boring, isn't it? No, <laughs> no, I, I don't think it's so boring, boring at all, actually. But, but I yeah. think, um, but also, I think that the, the, the idea that it hasn't happened before, I think in our lifetimes, we haven't had this, this infrastructure in this art world in the sort of sleepy 1950s, 60s. There wasn't a structure, and it was very difficult for artists to make a living, mm -hmm. apart from a few exceptions like Epstein, Hepworth, and things. It was there wasn't really an infrastructure, and it's sort of grown out of. And we have this incredible visual culture, but I don't think that's to say that it hasn't existed before. I think if you, as we were mentioning earlier, the Great Exhibition or something, mm -hmm. if you imagine the sort of the fever and the and of all these salons at the Royal Academy, and you know, right. I was just looking at looking at some um, Alfred H um, Hobbes, um, right. who's so one of the greatest sort of the, the most expensive painters of his time, who sort went into obscurity afterwards mm. but he was selling for crazy prices and people paying for his portraits and mm. but I think the same existed in Venice in when when you look at um, in, in, in the Renaissance you'd have these these feverish hubs and there would be a sort of these mini microcosms or these stock markets would evolve around 
finding the next best thing and you have these like any like any stock market like in the 17th century that famous tulip crash mm. which caused this spike where everyone suddenly invested in Dutch tulips and there was this spike in in the 17th century 1636 okay yeah yeah well you can tell but there, but these sort of things happen where people get wind of something mm. that they're onto a good thing and then a lot of they all buy all this mediocre work or might not be well, mediocre. They buy with their ears, not their eyes. And some or survives yeah. and some that proves Hi, Ed Caesar. I, um, there was a, on September the 15th in 2008, two things happened. Lehman Brothers went down and Damien Hurst made an awful lot of money at a sale at Sotheby's. And I just wanted to ask the panel, why has the contemporary art market continued to sort of exceed expectations in the way that the New York Times reports it, uh, while we are still in this you know, credit crunch, recession, whatever you want to call it, why hasn't it responded in the same uh, Does that to, kind to of the slightly same irk you, Ed, actually, or, or, or not? It was just uh, it's not a It's not a moral question. question. It's, okay. It was a question just, uh, I don't okay. understand why. Okay. I want to know so why. I think possibly because of globalisation, because of new markets like, you know, developing countries like China, who are spending, I think, they the, have become the biggest spenders on contemporary art. I think they've now surpassed America. Yeah. So there's new money coming in all the time. And because it, I suppose it's seen as an investment, these, those brand artists, I keep saying, are clearly an investment. They're not going to go down. Same with, with the Picassos and, and that kind of um, level. I, I think that it's a sure thing for new money. And I, I think... think but there's also um, there's there's since 2008 there's been a there's there's been a real desire to find something visceral to put your money in. People, if you've got a million pounds in the bank, suddenly since 2008, a it's not very secure because the banks might go under, and b yeah. there's no interest rate. So uh, uh, compared to the cost of living and the cost of houses, you're losing money every month. So if you've got a million pounds, you're losing five percent of that every year. So which it's is a way a of keeping of money. your money. So you there people are looking for ways of putting their money into. That's why gold has gone up so much and people want to put their money into a physical object and there was a guy um, um, Miami well, wow, what you're saying sorry the second is is that the worse times get the more commodified you know art becomes in that well, it's sense. The, yes that top percentile does that make us feel great doesn't no, it make me feel great no it doesn't make me I mean the idea that Cezanne's card players sold for 270 million yeah I mean that's basically just ruined Cezanne's market for everybody and it, it, it that that kind of activity at that top end is absolutely ludicrous of course it is but at the at the, the at the same time the reason why it keeps happening is because it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy at that level because it's a really 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 obscenely wealthy bunch of people who have to share similar advisors and have similar desire and they'll kind of outbid each other and especially in I used to work in Hong Kong and in the Hong Kong auctions it's very much a question of face you know if you go into that auction to buy something you're walking out with it otherwise you've lost all face so you, the money you're spending becomes just a, a game you're being agent. brilliantly honest that's great <laughs> and Alice who knows a lot about this something yeah well, I don't know about that, but I, I think Ed's question is extremely interesting, and I um, agree very much with what the panel has said. Firstly, that there is an explosion of wealth, mm. so that in the last uh, decade, I think it is, the number of what is known as high net worth individuals, so uh, people who have liquid assets, that spare change uh, of more than a million, um, has doubled. So uh, good news for some artists, there are uh, apparently 11 million high net worth individuals 
individuals in the world. Uh, and they are looking, as you say, to express themselves uh, and, and impress their friends. And one of the ways of doing that um, is with art. Um, and then coming to your brand artists, what they do want is a brand. Uh, because it needs to be recognisable, it needs to be easily, you know, it's a, it's a Warhol, yep. it's a Coons, and everyone knows that instantly, uh, because if you've made that sort of money, um, actually you're probably quite impressive, but you probably don't have a lot of time. You don't have the time to do the, I suppose, what I would call the scholarship part of, of shopping. Um, you, you want something that is um, instantly recognisable. And then to Conrad's point, where if I say not the market has conspired, I don't mean it as a conspiracy, but what the market has done is move towards those artists that are more commoditizable. So looking back at the, uh, the, the, the session we're discussing, um, and those artists tend to use a lot of mechanical reproduction. So like Andy Warhol um, famously said he wanted to be a machine um, and took, took himself out of the works. Uh, and uh, devolved um, a lot of the making of his works. He actually said of his assistant, Gerard Malanga, you know, if you like my paintings, meet Gerard, because he painted most of them. So this is outsourcing. Um, and a lot of them are very similar. And so that if you have what you need uh, in terms of that sort of market is you need things that are fungible. They need to be recognizable. They need to be interchangeable. I'm not talking in terms of art. I'm talking in terms of making that sort of market for those sorts of people. They need to be recognizable. They need to be interchangeable. Uh, they need to be quite a lot of them. Because if you're 11 million people, you want Warhol, because there are 10,000, say, Warhols in circulation. Um, you know, you don't want the, now correct me here, of Amir, because there's only 21? 36. 36, sorry about that. Okay, but we're, we're only in double figures. So these things have conspired. You've, you've shifted from, I think, what Simon is so attached to, which is the artist's hand and expression, to what you've been talking about, which is the artist's brand. Yeah. Yes. Is it Louise? Yes. Um, I, I just want to, to move it back to the earlier. We've seen, they almost seem to be getting onto the question of what is art, which is more interesting than money. I, I agree with Maggie Hambling. And I was so relieved when she actually said that art is about truth. Because, what, 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 you know, speaking as an average Philistine, I, I, just, I just can't, I feel so angry that. that these people, they're supposed, there's supposed to be a disconnect between me and the, and the artist. They're supposed to have the skill. They're supposed to have some special skill. If they're employing people, as Damien Hurst does, this guy that you just mentioned, I mean, you know, what, what, what's it all about? And, but the skill should be something that they uniquely possess, and which that's why the difference between Corbyn and, and, and Tracy Emin. I mean, surely there's some... And also the immortality they earn should be earned by them rather than them saying... I, I demand immortality because I'm me. Who gives a toss about them unless they produce something beautiful and connected to the truth, as you say? 
and, and somehow connecting the viewers to eternity, if you want to be pompous about it. Over there, I'm so sorry, it's dim. I can't That's recognize okay. you I, by name and face. <laughs> it's Sarah Churchwell. Oh, hi, oh, hi, hi Simon. Sarah. Goodness. Really good <laughs> um, to see you. I, I, well, I'd like to actually pick up on that point, and, and um, Simon, you know much more about this than I do, but of course, um, in, in the history of art, as, as I understand it, um, Michelangelo had a studio, Rodin had a studio. Um, they, they all had, I mean, they all had Da Vinci, you know, they all had people painting for them and with them, and that's part of the history of art, not just with sculpture, of course, but also with painting. Um, but also, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised, Simon, at your, at your although I, I, I understand it, I think, and I, and I empathize with it, at, at your indignation at all of this, because um, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, the Fricks and where they got their money for their beautiful museum. Mm. I'm thinking, uh, and, and how that museum was acquired. It was acquired, as you know, by them going around the world and picking up beautiful objects. Um, I'm also thinking about the Tate, which we you were already talking about, you know, is this wonderful um, public museum that we all know and love, where they got their money. Slavery, right? Um, I'm not sure what, what, what the era was in which the middle classes were buying up art and giving it to public spaces in order for people to enjoy them. Um, it seems to me, from my limited understanding of this, that the, the difference here is, and the question of your, of your putative Russian billionaire is, is what they're going to do with the art, um, is whether it is going, there's going to be a philanthropic tradition in which that art is then given back. I'm yeah. not suggesting that this is, that this is an point. optimal way of doing things, by the way. I'm not defending that as a system, which I hope is clear, because as I say, it's always, you know, these things have always been funded in very dubious ways, but the process of collection and acquisition, I don't think has ever been innocent in the way that I think that perhaps your questions have been implying. Mm -hmm. And and that the the and, and, and it does remind me also, and I'll just throw this in because I think it's an important point about, about the way it works in different places. Um, that when there was an argument, as, as you'll know, when, uh, when A.C. Grayling started his university, the New College for the Humanities, which was going to be partly for profit and it caused you know, huge controversy and huge, huge outrage, Terry Eagleton wrote a piece for The Guardian saying, my God, the last thing we want is an American-style thing where you can only get a library if a millionaire gives it to you. And I thought, well, at least in that system, you get a library. In this system, you don't get anything. The millionaires are buying a Caribbean island and running off you know, to it. So um, whether there isn't also a question here about a... Um, about as I as I say the the the, the not, not just the question of the quality of art but what we think that art is for and 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 whether we're also passing on that philanthropic tradition where at least if they're going to snabble it up at least they have some notion of giving it back at some point. I think you put your finger on it, um, Sarah, and it's a fair cop as you absolutely say that, that there was no age of innocence really um, even the church you know, was the great patron for devotional paintings essentially um, which was in some sense a sort of public service for the congregation of the faithful was also interested in making a hugely authoritative statement about, about its possession of you know, uh, the Fra Angelicos or the Giottos or whatever it is I, but the reason why I really um, was uh, 
I'm, why I'm grateful for you to say what you said, because it is a matter of balance. When the Fricks and the Wideners um, and the rest of them were indeed going around the world and buying up, they, they were also creating the National Gallery in Washington. They were also creating the Metropolitan Museum. Um, at the Courtaulds were creating the School of Education as well as a gallery. And the issue now is, you know, we do live, and we said this early on, and perhaps I've been, because I've, I've been sort of grumpy old man in, in, in this role, we are living in an extraordinary moment of flourishing public interest coming through the museums and, and galleries that we have. The issue, I suppose, is whether, you know, the Pinchuks and the Chinese we're hearing about and the Emirate people are indeed, as you say, going to create a kind of house of public connection well, for those They are building two museums. And you're, you're two, optimistic yes, about 200 that. private museums opening in China in the last two years. Yeah, 200, <laughs> 500, I mean. Mm. Who go, and, and the, okay, say a little bit about that, because I don't so, know. I mean, so that, I mean, there have now been people collecting in China for, I mean, for a long, some of the world's most extraordinary collections were born in China, but we just yep. don't know anything about them. But in terms of collecting contemporary art, international but predominantly Chinese contemporary art, there are, you know, amazing examples of private individuals who have amassed fortunes recently in the last yeah. 50 years and they've been buying art, they've been supporting the artists. And yeah, there's been a, a crazy bubble at auction for Chinese contemporary, but that's only one side of the story. The other side is people who are really scholarly, have really done their homework, supported those artists, worked with institutions, worked with the universities, because a lot of these artists don't, don't really consider themselves an artist until they get to about their 50s and then they can break free from their master and then they become not a student anymore. And they refer to themselves as students till that age and then they're being supported and nicely looked after by these individual patrons who have now got to the stage where they're potentially slightly embarrassed because of the western perspective of all this buying up of art and um, that's not their motivation but that's certainly something that a couple of people I've spoken to are conscious of and now they're creating these sort of private museums which are and quite amazing yeah, I've just been to China last week yeah. and there are loads of them, loads like, of one, them. One, the Long Museum in Shanghai yeah. has one floor of traditional and ancient yeah. one floor of um, diverse collecting tastes as well. Very diverse. One floor of contemporary and yeah. one floor of the propaganda art that nobody mm. was seeing. Mm. It was mouldering away in some storeroom, yeah. and she's brought it up and shown it, and it's the most extraordinary. Where thing are to new see. private museums happening in Europe? Russia. <laughs> well, Europe. Well, there's been a few here. There's the, the have they been comrade well, in, the, in Mar Britain? Margate. I mean, I don't know if it's a museum. It does, is it a museum? Uh, well, it's a public gallery. Yeah, it's a public gallery. Yeah. And um, yeah. the, um, the the other one up north, the Hepworth one, just opened. There's a few. I mean, there are a few. I mean, but uh, sadly, I mean, these are these are the initiatives that have only just opened that are to do with previous sort of initiatives of the Labour government and things that sort of have... Yeah, these are tough times not, for sustaining the connection between art and the people. And it would be mm. wonderful if some of the money and some of the, mm. you know, even the, the self-congratulatory passion then, of owning art by the rich would be fed into the public well, What sector. about the, take, the extension to the Tate Modern? That's yes. a very good example. And that's, that's not... That's, there's a lot of private money going into that. Well, on this hopeful note, I want to thank you very, very much for a wonderfully interesting and illuminating session. I hope you will enjoy it. That was the Names Not Numbers podcast. There are many more on namesnotnumbers.com. Thank you for listening.